Welcome to The Sword and the Spirit, where we take a look at the issues of the day both in and out of the church via teachings and interviews. Our goal here is to stimulate thoughts and conversations that will lead to positive growth and action on the part of the listener. My prayer is that those who have an ear to hear will hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Welcome back to another episode of The Sword and Spirit. Today we're going to do a little top 10 countdown. And this is just my list. We'll probably do some other lists later on with some different guests. But for now, you're stuck with me. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at one of my top 10 lists for the most mis either misunderstood, misquoted, or not properly quoted scriptures on my list. And I'm going to start from number 10 and we're going to work our way back to number one so starting with number 10 luke 9 23 luke 9 23 where it says if any man will come after me let him take up his cross and come follow me or as it says in the esv and he said to all if anyone would come after me let him deny himself take up his cross daily and follow me whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it many times i hear christians abuse that verse in the sense that they turn it into a metaphor and they'll say well you know my son's in prison or i have two children in prison so that's my cross or you know i'm stuck with this cancer and i have been fighting it for four or five years that's my cross or uh, I'm at a job and, you know, I have to, you know, I, I, I need the money. So I have to put up with the abuses of my boss or my coworkers. And that's the cross I have to bear. So we all have a cross to bear. I love what people say, and they say it so piously. We all have a cross to bear. Well, listen now, everything that I just said there, I would never minimize somebody's pain and suffering. This is not what bothers me about that people have pain they have suffering they have things in life that happen to us sometimes our own fault sometimes not our fault either way i don't i don't i'm not you know referring to that i'm referring to the misinterpretation when jesus said if any man come after me let him take up his cross daily and follow me that's reference to dying to self, denying yourself and dying to self, putting that old lower nature, Adamic nature to death daily and to follow him. That's what it's referring to. It's not referring to anything else. And it's referring to how you apply the cross of the work of Christ on the old man to put him to death. And that's all it means. You stretch it beyond that, then you're, you know, you're taking it out of its context, and that's not what it means. I think it's important for us as Christians to make sure we can't stop the world from doing it. They, they say what they say, and they like to make everything into a metaphor. But as Christians, let's not turn that into a metaphor. Please quit standing up in church and saying, you know, my, this is the cross that I have to bear because I'm suffering with whatever. No. If you're suffering with whatever, we will pray for you. We will empathize with you. We will struggle with you. But that's not the cross Christ was talking about. Christ is talking about death to self or death to the lower nature. And that's number 10. All right, let's move on from there to number 9. Number 9. And that's the one that says in Romans 8, uh, 28, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and those who are called according to his purpose. And so a lot of times we quote that and we say all things work together for good and they'll stop there. You know, all things work together for the good. I think there was even a movie about it. It was pretty, it was pretty a, a good movie, a good TV series. I liked it. Uh, I think it was called Passenger where they 
uh, the plane somehow got froze in time and they came back into the uh, future. Uh, let's say you leave the, you left Jamaica at on May uh, 9th, 2022, and you don't land in New, but when you land in New York, even though it was a three hour flight, but when you land in New York, is 2024 that type of thing and and one of the scriptures that the, that the grandmother gave them all things work together for good uh that's not what that passage is saying the passage is saying all those who work together all things work together for the good and then there are qualifiers there are two qualifiers number one of those who love the lord that's number one and number two who are called according to his purpose so if you don't love to god you cannot claim this verse. Let's start there. That alone will disqualify you. There must be a genuine love for God. That means you have to be in relationship with Christ for this to work. Then all things work together for your good. Because number one, you love God. And number two, you're called according to his purposes. You're walking in God's purposes. So the things that are happening to you are happening to you because you're moving in the purpose of God which tells you that things don't always go smoothly just because you're walking in God's purposes. But no matter what it looks like, it'll work itself out. As it was in the case of Joseph, his brothers hated him. They sold him into slavery. He was framed for a rape he didn't do. He was put in prison. Um, he helped one, he gave a prophetic word to two prisoners and the one that lived forgot all about him and didn't mention him to the king until God's appointed time. And then eventually God, take him from the pit to the prison and then he put him in the palace so all things were together for his good because he loved god and he was moving in god's purposes that's when that applies if you don't love god that's the first disqualifier right there if you don't love god so you please don't claim that verse or say all things work together for good because it doesn't all things do not work together for good it only works together for good for those who love the lord and who are called according to his his purposes and so that's the important thing that you want to look at if you're not called according to the purposes of god at all then you really don't need to uh, trying to be trying to claim that particular verse okay the next one is ephesians the fifth chapter ephesians uh, chapter five that entire chapter is devoted to husbands and wives. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. It's a whole big, great, big spiel. But there's a little thing at the back of it, a little thing at the back of it. Excuse me, this is number eight, actually. I just did 10, nine, and then number eight. There's a little thing that's, that's uh, in verse 32. And you see here in verse 32, and, uh, and then the qualifiers in uh, verse 33 look what it says so that whole chapter on marriage right this is what people miss however however that 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 word however implies that that's he's now going to tell you what he was really talking about however let each one of you love you love his wife as himself let the wife see that she respects her husband that's verse 33. But before 33, go back up to 32. This profound mystery, this is this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So that whole chapter is about Christ and the church. That's the primary message. He's only using marriage from a biblical perspective because we know all marriages don't work like this. Okay, let's just be real. But he's saying when a marriage works in an ideal fashion, if it looks like this, that's the type of marriage that would reflect to the world what the relationship is with Christ and the church. But he said, I'm talking about that whole chapter is about Christ and his church. He's just using marriage as the metaphor. Christ and his church are not the metaphor. The point is Christ and his church. And we know Christ is the perfect husband. And we know that the church, though imperfect she is at this point, is the bride and how christ treats the church and how christ feels about the church and what the church is to do towards christ which is submit to him and that's why he adds the however then he says however uh i also gave you some good principles for marriage yes there's some good principles for marriage in there but that's not what he's really talking about and that's what i mean by misquoted or misunderstood 
And I've heard this thing preached over and over and over again. Wives and husbands, wives and husbands, wives and husbands, wives and husbands. But I've never heard anybody or actually few people preach on that chapter and say this is how the church and Christ uh, relate to one another. We very seldom, uh, we very seldom see that. So that's why I say it's on my list of 10 scriptures that are either either misunderstood or not necessarily properly quoted. Number seven, number seven. And we find that in Luke's gospel. Just bear with me as I pull them up. Luke's gospel, chapter 21, and it's verses one through four. Jesus looked up, up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Now, this one here, I understand why people could not may get get this wrong to some extent because it's unless you understand the biblical context of, of what was going on in the temple and everything at that time, you probably wouldn't catch it. This is more than Jesus just commending this woman for giving her giving her last dollar. Christ is observing the corruption of the religious system. In several instances, at least twice, the Bible records he cleansed the temple. He made a whip and he drove the money changers and hucksters out of the temple. And he said, take these things hence. He said, my father's house should be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. He was talking about the corruption. See, this woman who was a widow, remember now, uh, the fatherless and the widow in the Bible times. It, there was no WIC program. There was no social security. There was no pension that she could inherit from her husband. There was nothing. Even if she inherited land from the husband, um, she couldn't have worked it by herself. So generally, if you were widowed or an orphan, you had, you had no political or economic power. Women's, a woman's testimony was not good in court at that time. And also, uh, women were not believed. So no matter what a woman said, her words didn't mean anything. Yes, that was the ancient world, misogyny. It was there. Even in Jesus' time, the misogyny was there. The Bible was loaded with examples of misogyny. No question about it. We'll deal with that another day. But having said that, so she had no political power. Now, if a woman had no vote, she could. She had no say-so. The elders would sit at the gate, meaning the seat of government. And so if a, if a man had a grief or something, he could go to the elders and make his case before the elders and say, I think, you know, we need to do X, Y, Z. We need to build this in the city. Uh, you know, we need to change these rules, etc." So men could have had a place to air their grievances, to redress their grievances to the, to the local government. Women didn't have that. They couldn't say nothing. If you, the only way a woman could have any say-so in the government, she had to tell her husband. And then her husband had to bring it before the elders, but she could not bring it before the elders. They would not accept or receive anything she was saying. So whatever the world was, women were, women were born into, they just had to deal with it. The only purpose was to, was to be a homemaker and make babies. That was it. That was the ancient world. It's, it's a wonder humanity has survived this long, right? So having said all that, so here's a widow. She has no economic or political power. She gave her last two mites. After she gave that last bit of money, chances are she, she had nothing else was coming. Now, here's what Jesus did not say. He did not say, well, I'm going to bless her and take care of her. I'm going to do this, that. It's not there. There's no reference to Christ saying what he's going to do for her or, or whatever. He just notices that she put in more than the rest. And he makes an observation about her devotion that she's giving her all. Now, Let's talk about the human corruption, because this, is a, this happened at the temple. Let's talk about the corruption of the temple. So they had these Ponzi schemes and these games they would run to where they were selling turtle doves, they were selling sacrifices, 
to the poor and taking your last dime and they were getting richer. So they were making, it became an industry. So people who couldn't, who didn't own land or have property or a farm or whatever to make sacrifices to the Lord, instead of them providing them for the individuals so they could make sacrifices to the Lord, a grain offering, etc. That's why God had different types of offering because everybody didn't own livestock. So what am I supposed to give to God? So God says, okay, you bring me some grain, bring me this or whatever. What can you bring? And so God would give them some qualifications. And then he made provisions for those in the law, in Leviticus, where they could go and get what they needed to make said sacrifices at no cost. But these jokers, man, they just decided, you know, forget it. You, you want to you sacrifice the Lord? Maybe you don't want to bring God a, a grain offering. You, I got turtle doves. I got doves. I got doves. You know, you know, uh, who's going to give me some doves? You know, and then the lie that they told you is that if you give your last dime, God is going to reward you for giving your last dime. Make a sacrificial offering. Sound familiar? Make a sacrificial offering, sacrificial giving. And somehow, if you if you if you give that last little bit of money, God's going to make you. Oh my God! God's going to just open the windows of heaven, and money's going to just fall out into your bank account or wherever. Later on in history, and this is not so. This stuff goes back in the day. Religion and business will always work hand in hand, and the religion always becomes an industry. So then, the next move, if you go a little further into church history, around, around the time of uh, uh, in the fifteen hundreds, I believe it was the time of Martin Luther, uh, when Rome wanted to build, they were building the basilica and all that fancy stuff you see in Rome that everybody goes to see in the Vatican. How did they build that? They built it by running the same game that got this woman to give her last two mites, thinking she's going to buy her way into heaven, and it won't. People were told, well, if you if you give money to the church, then, you know, you, you're earning time out of purgatory, which is a temporary holding cell, according to Catholic theology, um, until you get into heaven. Or if you are in hell, you can you can you can you can actually buy your way out or, or maybe but pay enough money for a loved one. If I give like a, sacrificially a hundred thousand dollars, I can get my mother out of hell, you know, if she's there. And this guy, Johann Tetzel came through uh, Luther's district and he had a little song he would say, or a little rhyme he would say, when the coin in the copper rings, that's the copper's offering plate. When the coin in the copper rings, the soul from purgatory will spring. So you drop the money into the into the offering plate and your loved one's soul flies out of purgatory. Now they're in heaven. And so it has this whole idea of buying favor with God. Operative word here. What's the word you hear a lot today? Favor, 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 favor. And so people are giving so they can incur favor with God. They want God to favor them. They want God to do something for them. You know, you heard about the NFL football player who dropped the ball in the end zone and he blamed God because I gave money to this ministry. I gave money to that ministry. I've given a lot of things in the community. Why did God let me drop the ball? Well, brother, let me tell you, you dropped the ball because you were inept. That's why you dropped the ball. Let's not blame this on God. God had nothing to do with it. So there are people, and Jesus was making the point, because right after that, right after that, then the apostles, in that same chapter, the Olivet Discourse takes place, where they, they start they start looking at him, and they say, look at all these wonderful, wonderful uh you know, things here about the temple and, oh, my God, this is magnificent. Yada, 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 yada. Look at how great the, 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 the temple is. And Jesus said, don't worry about it. All this corrupt religion that was particularly the one that's taking money from, from widows, the last two mites, all that corrupt religion is about to come down. There won't be one stone left upon another. I'm going to break this thing down here, which happened in 70 AD. The Roman uh, emperor, uh, Roman soldiers came and sacked Jerusalem. In 70 AD and destroyed the Jewish temple. It hasn't been put back up since. So, but corrupt religion, corrupt religion that takes your money. Don't let these people school you, fool you, and tell you that if you don't give sacrifice, if you give sacrificially, God's going to do something special just for you. Now, should you give to the church? Yes, I, I go to church. I'm part of a, of, a, of a very strong, very good believing body. 
of believers. I have good leadership. And I tithe. I give money. But I'm not doing it because God's going to give me anything. I just want light. I want the lights on. I want heat. You know, I want electricity so we can have services. I want certain things to go for street meetings and, and missions, etc. So I, I give money, right? That's why I do it. Now, is God going to give me back anything? He might, but then again, guess what? He might not, and he doesn't have to, and that's not why I'm giving. I just give because, just like I told you, there's certain things that I just know that just aren't going to happen if I don't if I don't give. But don't do the arm twisting. Don't fall for the arm twisting and the lie that if you give sacrificially, therefore God's now going to do something for you because God is under no obligation, no matter how much money you give, to do anything for you. God owes you nothing. You owe him everything. If you enter your bank account, you still haven't, you're still in debt to God. So it's not like you, oh, I gave, I, I loaned the Lord some money and now God got to pay me back, you know, double for my trouble. God doesn't have to do anything. It's a lie. Don't believe it. It's corrupt religion. When they start telling you that stuff, that's a form of corruption. And it should not be in the church. And if the church wants you to give, then just come out and tell people, listen, we need to do X, Y, Z. You know, the, 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 the toilets in, in the basement are busted up. We need, this is how much money we need to make the repairs. And then you ask the people to give. That's it. Done. Well, obviously, nobody, hopefully, nobody in the church wants to go into a bathroom that's busted up and water running all over the place, etc. So you want to have a nice bathroom to go into. All right, so then common sense, the church knows, hey, we better give to this project so we can get the thing built and we can go downstairs to a nice bathroom. What's so hard about that? But enough with the con games. Enough with the, with the manipulation. That's not of God. It is corrupt. And stop making people think that God's going to either bless them, get them into heaven, get your, your loved one out of purgatory, which there is no purgatory, by the way, either you're in heaven or hell. But stop making people think these things, because none of that is true. Literally, none of that is true. None of it. Number six, number six is found in the Gospel of Third John, chapter one. There's only one chapter here. And it starts out, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Or as in King James, beloved, that your soul prospers and be in good health. That you would prosper and be in good health as your soul prospers. Now, people take that to mean that it is the will of God now, therefore, for everybody to, to, to be prosperous and have good health. This is one of the bedrock misinterpretations and abuses of scripture that the prosperity gospel people tend to use. If you read the context, 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 if you read it in its context, that's like, it's a greeting. It's just a greeting. It's not God saying, you know, the Bible records a lot of things, for example. For example, the Bible records that there was a lot of polygamy back in the day, but that was never God's intention. Just because it's in there doesn't mean now, therefore, you could have multiple wives because Abraham had multiple wives or Solomon uh, or anyone else. Uh, that does not now mean you that you can do that um, or that somehow that God, you know, has sanctioned you having multiple wives. So there's a lot of things in scripture that are written in there that you have to look at it in its context and the customs of the time, etc., etc., and then what God was working through at that particular moment in time. Um, that does not necessarily mean God was happy or pleased with that aspect of their lives. Okay, so you cannot now take that and say, hey, I can have more than one wife. Well, that's the same thing they're doing here with this scripture. This is the apostle. This is John well-wishing, like, I wish you well. When somebody gets on a plane, I say safe travels. Or I say, 
you know, uh, I wish you well in your journey or Godspeed or this is just the same. It's just he's just wishing him well. This is not a this is not an edict. It's, there's no imperative in that verse. An imperative is when God gives an order, direct order, like this is what's going to happen. There's no imperatives in there. It's just a, a, a the, all the greetings start off and then he tells you what he would like to happen to you. You see this in Ephesians. You see this in all the other epistles, you know. I pray that your eyes of your understanding be enlightened, that you may be able to see, you know, what is the hope of his calling in you, et cetera, et cetera, and his inheritance in you. That doesn't mean that you will. The apostle's just saying, this is what I'd like to happen for you. And this is somebody wishing, you know, who wouldn't, what else are you going to wish for your friend except prosperity and good health? Duh. You know, now people say, well, doesn't God want us to be in prosperity and good health? I'm pretty sure that he does. But because God wants something, does that now mean he's going to make it happen on your behalf? No, it doesn't. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Read Hebrews 11. It said some were destined in the hall of faith. And God commends these people. They make God's A-list, I call it. Why? Because it says they were destitute, afflicted, tormented, wandered about in sheep and goatskins. Okay, some of them were martyred, some of them were sawn in half, fed to lions, etc. But the Bible says of those individuals, the world was not worthy to have them in it. God gives them honorable mention and then he elevates them by saying the world didn't even deserve to have people like that in it. Oh wait, they didn't prosper. No, they didn't have good health. Didn't happen. Destitute, afflicted, and tormented. Read it, Hebrews 11. Destitute, afflicted, tormented. There's two sides to this coin. Yes, there were those who stopped the mouths of lions, received that they're dead, and had all these wonderful, miraculous things. But then on the other side of the coin, destitute, afflicted, and tormented. So it's a, it's a, it's a mixed bag. There's no guarantee your service for God. You're going to be wealthy and prosperous and healthy and have plenty of money. Another con game. They're conning you. Save your money. I beg you, save your money. Stop supporting this stuff. You boycott it. You stop giving these people their money. Either they'll have to straighten up and fly right, or they'll, or they'll, you know, they'll just go out of business. Support your local church. Whatever church you attend, support that locally. Pump all your money in there. If you think something's going on there, then you know, by all means, at least you're there. You can confront. You can, you can, you can sit in the church business meetings and bring up your concerns. But you're not going to sit on the board of some of these larger ministries and bring up your concerns. And I know people say they do a lot of good, but they do more damage than good. Because they con you and fleece you out of your money. So, yeah, uh, think about it. Of course I'm going to build an orphanage in X and Y, Z country. Of course I'm going to put up some hospitals. But I'm also going to have me a, a $30 million home at your expense. And I'm getting richer and you're getting poorer. That's just a smoke screen. That's the smoke and mirrors they throw up to make you think. Oh, look, you're really helping some people. It's called philanthropy. People do that all the time. Wealthy people do that. They're, they're philanthropists, and they do good things. Wonderful. But they're still billion and trillionaires, and there's nothing wrong with being a billionaire or trillionaire, but you shouldn't have to rob God's people to do it or run a con game and put up a hospital for $300,000 while you're walking away with $10 million. That's a good trade-off. Can't beat that. They're conning you. Stop it. Invest money in your local church or local organization. At least some of that will come back to you in terms of services and goods and services inside the community. And you'll see some of the effects of that. Locally, start there. And if you think something's going not right locally, then go to when show up in the church business meeting, and that's the time to bring up your concerns. And if, you, and if you're still not sure, there are other churches that you can attend. Because not everybody out there is pleasing the sheep. There are some good ones out there. Uh, so, by all means, please, don't let people con you with this con game. It's a con game, and it's a lie, and it's a misinterpretation of Scripture. Now, a lot of saints quote that Scripture. Now, everybody who quotes it is not a crook. I'm just simply saying that people who are in the pulpit in terms of teaching that stuff, like these large ministries, etc., they, they've twisted it. And unfortunately, many... Well-meaning people think that that's what it means, and they quote it for yourself. Now, you've been quoting it for yourself and for others, 
and, and, and teaching that prosperity stuff, maybe you're just deceived. Well, I'm waking you up tonight today, okay? This is the wake-up call. Now you're woke. Stop it, because that's not what that verse means. Cease and desist immediately. And so that's another scripture that they pull out of context. It's just somebody wishing somebody well. That's all it is, saints. Please, let's not drag that, uh, you know, and make that the be-all, end-all. All right, let's go on to the next one. The next scripture here that's always taking out of taking out of context. Also, this one is in the Johns. We're going to go back to First John, chapter four. First John, chapter four. Hold on here a second. Let me just pull it up. Okay. Yep. First John. And chapter 4, verse 18. First John 4, 18. And it's always pulled out of context. And it says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear is torment. That's how they read out the King Jimmy. Read it out of the ESV. You'll see it'll make a lot more sense to you. So they say perfect love casts out fear. Now I have phobia. I have a phobia. I'm claustrophobic. I don't like elevators. I don't like closing spaces. Everybody has some type of phobia. Some people have arachnophobia. Don't like spiders crawling around, right? Okay. Those are phobias. Some everybody has some type of phobia, something that they don't like. Okay. Uh, whether it's rational or irrational, we just don't like it. Okay. And, you know, you work to overcome and control those phobias. Hopefully they won't control you. You'll find a way to control them. I can, I've learned how to control my my phobia of being claustrophobic. Because I get on a plane, you're, you're closed in. And I'm like, okay, then there's nowhere to go. I like wide open space. But have be that as it may, I can get on a plane and I can fly. Now, yes, if I'll get on elevators if I have to and make sure. Because now i got my cell phone. I make a call, hopefully. Get a good reception. Or I'm on there with some other people. But uh, but to get on by myself sometimes, if I can find stairs, yes, I will take take the stairs. And I'm telling you this because I just want you to know I'm human, just like the rest of us. So having said that, and no, I don't need deliverance. But here's the next thing somebody's going to come, and I know what you're thinking. You need to get delivered. Here, deliverance, deliverance, deliverance. Oh, my God, deliverance. Listen. Um, and then they, one big scripture they quote is perfect love cast out fear. That's... Not what, and, and they apply to any type of fear, any type of phobia anybody has. First of all, the Bible says that you need to have a fear of God. So what happens with that? Is that fear wrong to have a fear of God? Okay. All right, there you go. See, so some fear is good. Uh, there's some things that you should be afraid of. You should be afraid to step out into the street when a tractor trailer is coming, at, at, you know, coming down the road. You should be afraid to walk in front of a bus. You should be afraid when you go to the zoo to climb in the cage with a lion or the tiger or the gorilla. Yeah, you should be afraid of that. That's healthy. Now, is God going to cast out that fear? Is that tormenting? No, it's not tormenting. It's just a healthy fear. Drawing the fire to stove. Hopefully, you have enough sense not to put your hand in the flames. Okay? So, yeah, so fear in itself is not inherently a bad thing. So, let's read about this in context. What does this verse actually mean? Well, let's read about this. Let's back up a little bit. Let's start about verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Okay? By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence. Here it is. Here's the context. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Fear of what? Let's go back. What is he saying? There's no fear in love. There's no fear. Look but back up a little bit. Verse 17. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. There's no fear of the day of judgment because we're like him. And so and when, we, when God loves us and we love God, there is no fear in that love of God's judgment. There is no fear of God's judgment because he loves us. We love him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. 
for what fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not perfected in love we don't have fear of god's judgment saying that's what it's talking about that's all it's talking about it's not talking about other fears or phobias it has nothing to do with it now are there other scriptures that tell us not to fear yes but I'm, my argument is you can't use this one find another one something more best suited for this would be god has not given us a spirit of fear but of love power and a sound mind but even that has to be looked at in this particular context but to you will never eliminate fear because you need to have some fear or healthy respect if you want to call it that of certain things that can harm you and hurt you and kill you and destroy you not all fear is irrational and crazy you ain't crazy for being afraid to not put your hand being afraid of putting your hand in a fire or jumping out of a plane at 30,000 feet with no parachute yeah you should be scared to do that that should be that should put some fear in you so that when that doesn't happen you don't open the door and attempt to leap so that's another scripture that's taken out of context that uh tends to run contrary all right number four number four is Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, that's another one that's popped out of context. Because you can't leap off a roof and start flying now, can you? I'm not going to get in the ring with Floyd Mayweather and defeat Floyd Mayweather because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not what the context of that verse bears out. Context, context, context. What is he referring to? You get in the ring with, with one of these MMA fighters talking about I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and you don't know what you're doing, you haven't trained or done anything. Only thing you're going to do is get beat up. That's the only thing that's going to happen. And you're going to look like a fool. And that's about as far as that's going to go. So let's look at that. I believe it's in Philippians 4. Verse 13, let's take a closer look at it, see if we can look at the context of what uh, the Apostle's talking about. Uh, back up to about verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to, to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do you see the context? Paul is talking about having things and not having, prospering and not prospering. If I have abundance, great. If I don't have abundance, uh, it's okay. I've, I have learned to be content in every circumstance. For I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In those circumstances of having and want or having abundance there you go as you're walking through life whatever comes your way whatever trouble happens to you you can do all things through christ who strengthens you in other words god, god god's grace is sufficient and you can handle it because god's going to give you the means and the power to indeed handle it that's it it does not now mean you can do all kinds of crazy get into the lion's cage and try to wrestle the lion see what happens and uh, just make sure you do your will at last will and testament before you get in there. And you got some nice insurance for the hospital. That's number four. Number three. Number three. Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 3. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. And this is what it says. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen for by it the people of old received their commendation by faith we understand that the universe here it is verse three by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of god so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of god god spoke and the universe leapt into existence then they make a quantum leap of logic, something that's not even in the verse. It's nowhere in there, saints. It's not there. 
That's what you call eisegesis. You're putting something into the text that's not there. It says God spoke and he created by speaking. Then people assume, if, therefore, if God speaks and he can create, therefore, I also can speak and create. Wrong. There's nothing in that verse that suggests that your words have power to create. That is a metaphysical perspective. It is not a Judeo-Christian perspective. It's nowhere in scripture, nowhere in the Bible. Psalm 62 says this, I've heard it once and twice have I heard it spoken. Power belongs to God. If in fact I can create things with my words, why do I need to pray? Now, if anybody could have done it, it would have been Jesus, and even he prayed. So what's the point in praying? What's the point in petitioning God for anything? Just speak it into existence. That's all you have to do. And then the ironic thing is if it's negative, people say, oh, no, oh, don't say that, don't say that, you know. And, and, and so there's like the negative things are going to happen like right away, you know, like if you say something wrong, like, oh, man, you know, I would never get cancer. Then people go, oh, no, don't say that, don't say that. And they act as though tomorrow morning you're going to get cancer. Look, let me tell you. But when it's something positive, it doesn't work. So let, let, anytime you want to test something, take it, force it to the, to the extreme and see if it makes any sense. Okay. I declare and decree that a gold bar is going to appear in my room right now. Well, I'm here recording, and uh, let me say, I wish I was on video, but I will be soon. Just hang in there with me. I'm looking around here, and there's no gold bar in my room, people. See that? And it, do it, it doesn't work. I declare and decree there's going to be a million dollars in my bank account. Now, next podcast, I'll come in here, and I'll let you know whether the million dollars came in or not. I'm pretty sure it's not going to happen. But that's what people do. And so there are folks running around declaring and decreeing and speaking things into existence. Now, uh, and then the, the other one they misquote, here's another one I'll add into that. So it actually, actually end up being 11. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. And people think, see, 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 there it is, there it is, there it is, there it is. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. You, you, you say these words and, 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 and magic's going to happen. Um, the next podcast we're going to do, we're going to do 10 things Jesus never said. Okay, um, but this one is the scriptures taken out of context. Okay, let, let's let's just deal with that. I'm a football coach. Anybody have done any coaching at all? And maybe your team is, is are underdogs going into the championship game or any game for that matter. Your team is underdog. Well, the coach is going to go down. Then here's what the coach is not going to do. He's not going to go down and say, "Well, look, we're supposed to lose anyway, so." You know what, let's just go out there and have some fun, do the best you can, and, uh, you know, we'll see if we can win next time. That's not what the coach is going to say. The coach is going to give a speech of positivity. He's going to be positive. He's going to say, "We're gonna. I want you to ignore the newspapers. I want you to ignore the media. Look inside yourselves. Dig deep. And, you know, bring your A game. Bring your A game today. Let's show these people, you know, we came here to, we came here to do battle. We're going we're gonna to fight for this thing. Make them fight for everything. We can win this. It's possible. You know, and you're going to try to get them to believe in themselves and motivate them and light a fire under your team to get them fired up to go out there and do and, and win. That's what it means by life and death is in the power of the tongue. It's not magic. It's just motivational speaking. You can motivate people in that sense. But that does not now mean if I take a, a, a team of, of, uh, of eighth graders and we're on, we're, you know, and we're going to go play the, uh, the, the NBA All-Star team with Steph Curry, LeBron James, and whoever else you can name that's superstars. And I take my eighth grade basketball team and I say, you know what? If I speak, life and death in the power of the tongue, so if I say the right words here and I tell this eighth, these, eighth graders, you can, these eighth grade kids, you can beat these superstars in their prime. I don't care what you say in that locker room. They're not going to beat those superstars. They're going to get blown out big time, completely dominated. That's what I mean. So it, it doesn't work. It has to be within a particular type of context and a particular type of setting. Or another setting is things that you say to your children. You're no good. You're just like your father. Your father was a bum. You're going to be a bum. You're from nothing. You ain't going to be nothing. Well, that the life that's you're, you're taking your, your your tongue and you're speaking death to that child. 
The child is going to start to believe it and is going to begin to act out on those things. So you don't say things like that to children. You say positive, reinforcing, and encouraging things uh, to that child. This is not magic, people. It's just a just just like that's all that means. But it does not now mean you can speak, uh, you know, wealth into existence. It doesn't mean you can speak a house into existence. It doesn't mean you can speak anything into existence. That's not what it's referring to. Okay, it's referring to when you talk to people, you can harm people emotionally and physically, emotionally with your words, or you can motivate people to rise above their circumstances. That's all it means. It doesn't mean anything else. Stop it. Just stop it. And now we're here at the final two, the last lap. And let us go to number two. Revelations 12, 11. Revelations 12, 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. How many times have you heard them say that? Overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. That's not what it says. It says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. That's one. The word of their testimony. That's two. And three. And they loved not their lives unto the death. Now, People think that, that refers to martyrdom. I used to think that for a long time. And it, it I'm sure martyrdom is part of that equation. But in Matthew 9, which we started out with, Jesus said, if any man will come after me and deny himself, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And then he says, he that loves his life will lose it. And he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. Loving not your life unto the death simply means that you that as you live in this life, that you don't love it in the sense that you're so committed to God and to his agenda and to his plans and purposes that your that your priorities are to look out for God's happiness, God's joy, and God's peace. I'm going to talk a little bit about that too, maybe another podcast on the you know, referencing the city of God. Where there's a the city of man is the love of self and to the exclusion of God, and we'll sacrifice everything for ourselves, looking out for number one, which is me. And then there's a city of God where God, you sacrifice yourself, but for God, not for yourself. And so you put God's priorities first, you put God's missions first, and God's concern, and how God feels about everything, and that's how you make all your decisions based on whether or not it puts a smile on God's face or not. Not because you're afraid of him, but because you love him. And so when it says they love not their lives unto the death, they have that level of commitment. That's how they overcame. If you love your life, you can't overcome. You'll lose it. You lose your life for his sake, then you'll find it. That's what Jesus is talking about. Not necessarily martyrdom, though that may, for some it may come to that. But if you live in the West, in, in the Western world, it, it, it would, English-speaking world, it's not. It's almost highly unlikely that'll ever happen. Martyrdom is not the issue here in the West or with English-speaking nations for the most part. Um, but uh, the rest of the church globally, yeah, you, you might have to face that. So that's what that particular verse means. And then number one. Here we go. Number one. <laughs> I don't have a drum roll for you. But number one is it found in Matthew 7. Judge not that you be not judged. For what judgment you judge is to be measured back to you with a good measure. Okay. Judge not that you be not judged. The same standard or rule of measure that you use will also be measured back to you. That's what's going to happen. Now, this one's going to take a minute here. Let me, let me work with this a second. I'll give you a little background on this. This one is used so much. And the reason why it's number one on my list is because not only do saints use it, the sinners use it. Only God can judge me. Only God above can. It's in the hip-hop songs. Only God above can judge me. Who are you to judge me? You judging me. 
you know, gen, the younger generation, they they judging. I left it because the church was judgmental. They judging me, judging, judging, judging. Doesn't matter. People ain't saved a lick on their way to hell, and they worrying about the church judging them or anybody judging them. Who are you to judge me? You don't you don't define me. Which is, by the way, this is that's one of the sayings that Jesus never said. You don't define me. You ain't gonna tell me. You know. And so much of the self help gobbledygook is out here, and we've sort of merged that in with in with the gospel and one has nothing to do with the other. The context here of judge not now let me let me say this for uh, as well. I'm gonna I'm gonna get to the to the text, but, but but let me say this as well. The Bible says a lot of things and all you have to do is sit back and apply a little bit of common sense and say it can't mean this. We make judgments all the time. You're walking down the street, say 2 a.m. in the morning, and there's some guys that are coming down the road and uh, towards you, and you're walking, and you're female. Uh, do you clutch your purse? Do you cross the street? Because you don't know what they're coming to do. And you see them, they're acting up, they wild, and look like they had a couple of drinks or whatever. You're going to have to make a value judgment. And people say, oh, that's pretty, that you, you, you profiling people, you better believe, you better profile people. I'm not, saying that you, I'm not saying that your assessment may be right. I've been times, I've been walking down the street, and I've seen women clutch their purse when I walk by them. But I understand, because they don't know me. They don't know what I'm going to do, and they may have a stereotype of me. Okay, that's fine. I get it. I get it. But we make judgments all the time, people. We make snap. We, make, we judge people all the time. You have to decide, are they coming to rob me? Are they coming to hurt me? Should I cross the street? Should I go the other way? What should I do? When you're going, when if you're in in uh, in HR, human resources, and you're interviewing somebody for a position, you have to make a value judgment. Is this person does this person fit in with the with the the culture of the of the job? They may be qualified, but maybe their persona won't fit within the culture of the of the uh, of the company, depending on what the company type of culture the company wants to have in the, in the office. There are many superstar uh, basketball players all the time. They get traded. It's not because a guy can't play. He's excellent, but he doesn't fit our scheme of things. So the coach makes a judgment call and says, no, trade him. Judgment calls are made all the time as to your worth and your value. And that boss doesn't give you a raise. He's made a value judgment. Now, it could be wrong, or he may be right. I mean, you might be worth the raise, and then again, maybe you ain't worth the raise. I'm not saying all judgments are correct. I'm just simply saying we judge all the time. And so the very people who are judging are telling you not to judge, but they're judging all the time because we do it all the time. So clearly that scripture can't refer to the fact of not making judgment calls because you have to make judgment calls. You just have to. Judge not. Now here's the reason why most people use that. Particularly saints, I'm going to go out here and fornicate, or I'm going to go out here and just start wilding, drinking, or whatever. It's doing things I know I shouldn't be doing as a believer. And then I want to come to church, and I don't want nobody, I don't want no correction. Do not correct me. In fact, don't say nothing. Who are you to judge me? Y'all judging me. And then I run out the door. Y'all judging me. That's why I don't come to church, because y'all judging me. Y'all judging me. It is the job of the pastor and the elders, and yes, even your brothers and sisters in Christ, the saints. The Bible says, if you see a brother or a sister, for that matter, overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual. Okay, let's not talk about the unspiritual ones coming to you, because the, the Bible qualifies. It. They have to be spiritual. So let's assume a pastor and elder, somebody that's spiritual, right? Let's assume that they not only hold the office, but they actually are what the office requires. Because some people hold offices and they aren't required. But okay, aren't, uh, aren't meeting the requirements. Or they're not qualified. But let's assume that this is a church. Pastors qualified. The elders are qualified. The leadership in the church. The deacons are all qualified. Got a good, solid Bible church. They see you overtaken in a fall. The Bible says those who are spiritual, the ones who qualify, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness. Yes, they should come in a spirit of meekness. Okay, they're not to be lauding it up over you and, you know, beating you down. 
in a spirit of meekness, considering themselves as they also be tempted. But they, uh, uh, yeah, but they must say something to be restored. Or shepherds keeping watch for your souls. The shepherd has to say, Don, that's not right. You shouldn't do this. This is wrong. Now, what you don't tell the pastor at that point of the spiritual leader, you judge me. Who are you to judge me? You know, you ain't no better than me. And see, and so they take the scripture, the truth of God's word, and it's true what it's saying, but you cannot now take truth and use it as a smokescreen to cover your own sin. That's what I'm saying. They take that scripture, throw it down like, like Batman, like a smoke bomb, poof, and use it to escape, use it to cover their own sins and to excuse themselves from any rebuke or correction. So I don't want to be corrected, so this is my smoke bomb. Don't judge me. Poof. And people in the world do it all the time. Every time you say something about, oh, poof, who are you to judge me? Poof, I'm gone. And so nobody can be corrected. Nobody can be spoken into. Nobody can get any help because I, want, I like my sin. I want to stay in my sin. And this is the, my protection against anybody correcting me. Poof. Judge not that you be not judged. Who are you to judge me? Only God above can judge me. Who are they to tell me I shouldn't do this? And it's a smokescreen. That's an abuse of scripture. It's a scripture that's a truth, but they miss it, but then they abuse it. And when you take scripture and abuse it for your own personal ends and gains, guess what? Mm. Ooh, God's not pleased with that. Wrong. 100% wrong and incorrect. And that's the number one. Judge not that you be not judged. And the context there is, if you read it, he's talking about hypocrisy in that chapter. He's talking about don't judge hypocritically. And so if I'm fornicating and then I'm coming and tell you, you should stop fornicating. That's when that verse applies. And only the time that verse applies. The person giving the correction can't be doing the same thing. Yeah, well, who are you? You, you telling me not to fornicate, man? You, was, you were over there with Susie last night. We talking about? All of a sudden, you, you raising yourself up, trying to straighten me out. That's what he means. Don't judge hypocritically because what God is, God is going to look at, God's going to say, okay, so that's the rule. That's the measure. That's the standard you use. You set the standard at level 10. Okay, so I'm going to judge you. So God's going to hold you to that level 10. Whatever, whatever, whatever measure you use, whatever your stick is for measuring and how you deal with people, God's going to measure that same thing back to you. You just make sure that you're, that you're doing that. That's all. And you're good. Jesus said, how can you remove the, the speck out of your brother's eye and there's a log in yours? First, take the log out of yours. Then, he didn't say don't correct him. He just said, get yourself together first. And once you get yourself straight, then you'll see clearly in how to take the speck out of your brother's eye. But you do have to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's got to be done. But Jesus said, start working on yourself first. Get yourself together, metaphorically speaking. And now... You can see clearly to help that other person. But nowhere in that scripture does it mean that you can't judge at all or that you can't say anything to anybody when they do something wrong. That's insane. Because there would be no discipline in the church. There would be no correction in the church. And you end up like judges. Every man does what is right in his own eyes. And the great smoke screen, the great escape clause that gets you out of the handcuffs is only God can judge me. And there's a lot of people who are going to end up in the flames. Yeah, that's right. Because instead of repenting of their sin and accepting the correction, who you, how do you know God didn't send that person to correct you? How do you know God didn't send them? And so if God sent that person and you reject that correction, particularly in this case, say a pastor, which is more likely that's what's happening, and you reject his correction, or that an elder of a church or whatever leadership, guess what? Guess what? You're, you're going to break your fellowship with God and you're not going to grow and mature. And if you're not saved, you're going to hell. It's just that simple. Straight to hell. Do not pass gold. Do not collect $200. And a lot of people are going to be in hell who didn't want to be judged by their neighbor or by their friend. But let me tell you something. One day, every last one of us, and that's me included, top of the list, we're going to be judged by God. And God's going to do righteous judgment, but you may not like the end result. 
So I suggest when God gives you opportunity and uses other people to speak into your life, let them speak. I'm not saying you have to let everybody speak, but you, you've got use a little bit of common sense. You know when people are spiritual and, and you know who they are. And when they're speaking into your life for your own good and not trying to, you know, to beat you down in that sense, but they just want to pick you up. But in order to pick you up, I got to call out your sin. I'm sorry. Got to call it out. Let's start there. Here's where the sin is at. This is what we got to work with. Now, for those of you who are correcting people, you can't do it in pride. You can't exalt yourself over that person. You can't lord it over that person. And if, after the issue has been dealt with, you cannot come back 10 years later and say, hey, remember, yeah, and beat them up with it. Yeah, that's what you did last time. Look, you did something else here again. No, the objective is to confront the sin, hopefully come to some type of repentance of said sin, and then pray with that person to get victory, but never judging that person, never redrawing your love from them. You know, one here's another scripture that people mess up when it says, you know, uh, if your brother sin against you, take somebody for a witness. Uh, you know, first you go to him, you go to him, you and you and him alone first, try to resolve it. And if it's unresolved, then you'll get another brother, so you have witnesses. And the purpose is to have witnesses. That's all. It's not for the, you. Don't bring somebody to be on your side. It's a dispute between you and me. And we bring in a third party who is objective. They're just going to witness what's said. They ain't going to say Don is right. They ain't going to say you're right. They're just going to be objective to witness, witness what's going on. Then we can't resolve it from then. Then we bring, you know, then we bring it to before the church. And we try to resolve it through through that. And hopefully the church can be objective. But, you know, we all have our friends in there who can take our side anyway. Uh, but the pastors and the leadership must remain 100% objective. They must not and cannot take sides. Uh, having to, and that, that's just counseling 101. You, you never take sides in a dispute. And the other thing is, um, so this is, and then people say, now, if the person doesn't receive the church, then, then you, you, know, you excommunicate him, cut him off, let him beat you like a heathen or a sinner. Well, how do you treat the sinner? You love them. It's not a matter of cutting them off. Yes, the relationship is, the, the fellowship isn't there. We, I can't fellowship with you the same way we always used to fellowship in that sense, you know, like worship together and that type of stuff. But what I can do is I can still, I can still, you know, uh, just like you were a sinner or a neighbor that you may have that's not saved or whatever. And you, you look for, you. Any opportunity that comes up, I want to show you the love of God. So I'm going to, just like I like I win the sinner with the love of God, praying for them, you know, calling them up on the phone, hey, man, how you doing? Yada, 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 yada. You know, I'm still praying for you, my brother, you know, uh, anything I can help you with. And you keep reaching out to that person in love. doesn't mean cut them off. It's quite the opposite. It means you start reaching out to that person with, with the love of God and praying for them. Um so that one day they can be restored. And that's what your, your goal is at, restoration. But you don't want to just suddenly now cut them off and shun them and let no one speak to, you know, Don Reimer, remove his name from all the records. Take his name off of the wall. Don't put this and that. He, strike this and he, he was never this. Or, you know, you bring him in front of the church and like, you know, branded, you know, you, you defrock them. You see the movie branded, they take the sword and they break it in half and then they, Strip him of his rank, you know, rip his, the rank, the bars off his shoulders, and then they make him walk out the, the fort, you know, and then they break his sword, etc. You know, so you bring him from the church, you, you just un, you snatch the collar off of him, you know, cast it down on the ground, rip open his shirt, rip the buttons on his shirt and everything else, and then tell him to leave the church and never return, you know. Uh, or like Thor, you know, when Odin takes his power and grabs a hammer, you know. If he repents, you will possess the power of Thor, and I cast the out and throw his Bible out somewhere. When he repents, his Bible flies back to him or something crazy like that. Okay, I'm just being facetious here. But you get the point. The idea, the idea of excommunication is restoration. And so it's not that you shun the person, but obviously if the person's not in right relationship with God, and I'm in right relationship with God, of course our relationship is going to be different. But there still has to be a relationship so that I can bring him back to the Lord. So it may be some time, but you know, you keep praying and you're asking God to restore such a one. So thank you for listening to this edition of Sword and Spirit. 
And if you think of anything else, topics that we can talk about or any other scriptures you have questions about that are taken out of context, you can contact me at rhyd12001 at gmail.com. God bless you and thank you. Thank you for your listening to this episode of The Sword and the Spirit. Hopefully it was a blessing to you. You've learned something. And like I said, this podcast is not about being right. It's about just creating conversations so we can just at least rethink some of the things that we say and that we do in the house of God. And then we can improve ourselves and be better. So thank you for listening. And God bless you. If you want to reach me, rhyd12001 at gmail.com. Please subscribe like and share uh, this podcast with your friends and others particularly the ones that are blessed you can scroll down and see the various titles and other episodes that I've done and hopefully it'll be a blessing to you and to those others who listen to it as well that God will richly bless them I thank God for you taking your time and your energy uh, to listen to this podcast coming soon we'll be doing something for Father's Day coming up and we'll be talking with some men and dealing with some men's issues we have a lot of topics coming up we'll be dealing with missions and evangelism and outreach etc so any other topics you'd like me to cover by all means please reach out god bless you and yes we'll do some more things also on dealing with young adults in the church god bless you and thank you for listening